Digital Marketing Radio, episode 165. How to optimize Google AdWords in 2016. DigitalMarketingRadio.com Digital Marketing Radio is part of the 3B Podcast Network. UK casters talking business growth. Find out more over at 3BPN.com. The big interview with David Bain. Now today I'm joined by a man who's helped over 2,000 businesses grow using the power of pay-per-click advertising and website optimization. He's a passionate entrepreneur on a mission to help businesses achieve online marketing success. Welcome to DMR, Jacob Badsgrad. Hey, thanks for having me, David. Hey, Jacob. Yeah, thanks for joining me. We can find Jacob over at disruptiveadvertising.com. So... Jacob, should AdWords still be one of the primary online advertising considerations for most businesses now? Yeah, so the short answer is uh, hell yes. (laughs) And the long answer is it depends on your business model. And so things have certainly changed in the realm of Google AdWords over the last year and, and dramatically over the last five years. And so there are situations where it certainly makes more sense than others. And there are typically a few questions that I would encourage anyone to ask themselves before determining whether or not AdWords is the right solution for them. Okay, okay. Well, that leads me on to many questions, I'm sure, in terms of um, what are the next questions. Uh, Certainly, I've seen in the press Google AdWords making lots of changes over over, over the last few months. Um, You were saying, you know, that there's been a lot of changes over over, over, over the last year, and I kind of interrupted what you were saying there. So, um, um, carry on and and tell us um, maybe some changes that has been going on. Perfect. So, the the biggest change that has happened over the last several years is just the cost. Uh, Most people, I don't think, actually realize that Google AdWords, especially when we're referring to paid search, is an auction format. And so people are literally bidding on where they want their ads to show up. And the more people that are bid, the more bidders that there are in the auction and the more that they're willing to bid, it will drive the costs up in any particular industry. And so early adopters of AdWords had a lot of success by driving cheap traffic to their sites. And enough of, you know, if, you, if they pushed enough volume through there, they would be successful. And it was cheap enough traffic that it worked. Well, now we work in industries where the cost per click might still be $1 or $2, but we also work in industries where the cost per click is well over $100, and in some, even up to $500 per click. And so you might ask, well, does it make sense to advertise in those industries anymore? Some expensive ones that uh, maybe to, to share uh, the legal industry, uh, people that are looking for uh, accident attorneys or a mesothelioma a lawsuit or those types of things. You've uh, those, been practicing those, saying those, that word. Yeah, and those can be very expensive terms. And what we found is that ultimately, it doesn't really matter what you're paying from a cost standpoint. It depends how much it costs in contrast to the revenue that it produces for you. And so the the biggest change that has happened is you can no longer spray and pray and drive volume through an AdWords account and expect to be profitable. What you can expect is to lose a lot of money if you take that approach in AdWords now. And I think that that's why a lot of uh, new businesses or businesses that tried it once upon a time and were not successful shy away from it because it is expensive and they didn't make money on it. And the first thing that I like to look at is creating a bit of a, of a funnel to help me understand whether or not AdWords is a good fit for my business. And so the first question that I'm asking and trying to understand is what is my customer lifetime value? 
if a paying, what's a paying client worth to you? When someone buys a service or a product from you, what's the average amount that that is worth? Uh, let's use a simple example, $100, right? The second question I'm asking myself is, okay, if on average my order value for my product or services is $100, how often do I get referral or repeat business from this customer? And let's use the assumption that, okay, well, I tend to get uh, between referrals and repeat rates about another $50 um, out of these customers. And so my customer lifetime value is about $150. What I've found is that most businesses, there's kind of this magical ruler that, uh, that I've seen time and time be applicable for many business models. And that is how much am I spending in marketing to produce $1 in revenue? And so the idea is if I'm spending $1 and producing $1 in revenue, then I'm losing a lot of money. That's saying 100% of my budget is going to marketing, and that doesn't account for any fulfillment or product or shipping costs, right? Uh, a 1 to 2 ratio is typically still a fairly steep loss. And $1 spent in marketing to produce $3 in revenue is typically where businesses start to break even. A 1 to 4 is typically sustainable, and a 1 to 5 ratio typically is where they can drive volume and really start to grow their business. And so when we use that magical formula or ruler, whatever we want to call it, if my customer lifetime value is $150, how much should I be willing to spend to get that customer? And now I look at it and I say, okay, well, if it, if it costs me $75 to go and get a a new customer from AdWords, I'm probably losing money. I'm at that one to two ratio, right? But once I start getting into that $50 and lower cost per sale, now all of a sudden AdWords is starting to make sense for me from a break-even, from a sustainability, and perhaps even a scalability model if I can get that cost per sale below $30 to get past that one to five ratio. And you know what's interesting is you can use that information to empower you as a business owner or as a marketer to now go into AdWords and say, here's the keywords that I think would be relevant traffic to come to my site. And here's what a cost per click on that keyword is going to cost me. And if that's going to cost me $10 per click, and I expect one out of 10 people to convert on my website into a sell for me. Well, $10 a click times 10 clicks to get a sell, I'm now paying $100 to drive a $100 initial sell and $150 customer lifetime value. I'm probably not making money. And that now starts to help me make a decision on whether or not AdWords is going to make sense or what aspect of my business model would need to change in order for AdWords to make sense. That might mean I need to get a $300 customer lifetime value in order for this to make sense. That doesn't necessarily mean AdWords doesn't work. It just might not work under the current circumstances. There's a few questions that I can think of, actually, as, as a follow-up to that. Uh, it makes absolute sense that um, a lot of businesses um, should stop focusing on trying to make a profit straight away and look at the lifetime value of customers. It's it's night and day from where it used to be. It's, it's funny because yeah. I was one of the arbitrage kids back in 2004, 2005, and I was driving... AdWords traffic at websites and converting that directly to AdSense and actually making a profit doing that. <laughs> but that, 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 that was <laughs> Those the days are long That's gone. Possible, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. What um, springs to mind immediately, actually, is what you're talking about in terms of lifetime value. Is it necessarily to distill down into the lifetime value of an average AdWords referred customer? Or can you just take the lifetime value of your average customer full stop? 
Yeah. So I think from a good, better, best scenario, the best case scenario is to measure all marketing platforms and their contribution to your business. I think as a starting point, just use your average number um, to see if if it's viable and if it's going to make sense. And then as you run the campaigns, things might prove to be better or worse than you anticipated. I think that those are the numbers, that average number that you're using is to kind of get more of that. Does this have legs? Is it possible that this is going to work? Because if I look at that and say, it's going to cost me $500 to get a customer that's only going to pay me $150, you're so far off the mark, it doesn't make sense. But if you come in and you say, hey, I think, yeah, $50 seems reasonable, then I think that's where we're using that information. Now we're actually running the test, we're running the program, we're running the campaigns, and we're letting the numbers start to uh, shake out and ultimately give us that model as it relates specifically to paid search or your pay-per-click campaigns. And if you're in the type of business that keeps your customers for maybe five years, is it worthwhile? Is it possible to actually use five years as the lifetime value length of time? Or does it come after a certain period of time where you've got to say, no, um, this is the customer value after one year, and um, that's all I can justify in terms of actually paying money to advertising? Well, that depends on your cash flow situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> and how quickly you're looking to make a return on that cash. And yeah. so uh, for most businesses, you know, you probably don't want to look too far out because I'm not in the business to make money five years from now. I'd like to see a return sooner than that. And so typically I think, you know, a six month to a year mark is probably a reasonable time frame to be looking at to for, for the average business. Now, there are certain industries that I work in that are willing to get a three- or four- or five-year payback. Um, these are typically larger businesses, publicly traded companies, where um, you know, a good enough return over an extended period of time is, is satisfactory to them. But for an average a smaller or to mid-sized business, I think a six-month to a 12-month customer lifetime value is probably the best place to be looking. I think that's great advice. Um, now, in terms of specific AdWords strategies at the moment, I, I see a lot of talk about maps, about things like expanded text ads, um, even responsive display ads. Is there any type of ad um, that is particularly effective at the moment in AdWords? Well, what I can tell you is that uh, the majority of spend on AdWords is still running through their paid search campaigns. And um, the reason why is it's not incredibly sexy, um, but that's when you think about your marketing funnel from high end, from the top of the funnel to the very bottom of the funnel where they're ready to make a buying decision. As we think through the different advertising avenues that AdWords provides, you're targeting them at different phases in the funnel. And so where I see businesses tend to struggle is when they completely rely on one aspect of marketing. My preferred, this is how I've grown my own business. Believe it or not, I'm an agency that provides PPC services, and I drive the majority of my leads and sales through my own PPC campaigns. I spend about $40,000 a month myself on these types of campaigns. And so it works, and it works for myself as well. Um, I typically like to start where I feel like I can generate the best return immediately, and then I like to branch out there to create stability um, over the long term as things do change. So paid search is is definitely my go-to out of the gate if someone's just getting acclimated to using AdWords for their business. Um, As I'm expanding a campaign, the first thing that I'm doing is I'm setting up a retargeting campaign with custom audiences 
to complement not only my paid search campaigns, but any existing traffic that I'm already getting to my site, whether that be through organic, social media, or a variety of other channels. And uh, between paid search and retargeting, high intent paid search, I should say, and retargeting campaigns, that's typically where we're generating the fastest ROI and getting the most value. Now, retargeting in AdWords is similar to most retargeting platforms in that you can create custom audiences. And what retargeting means for most businesses is if someone comes to my website, I follow them around with a generic branded ad for the next 7 to 30 days, right? Typically, it does not drive a very good ROI. However, if you approach it a little bit differently and create custom audiences in your retargeting campaigns, you can say someone that came to my site, viewed three or more pages and looked at this particular product, follow them around with this particular product ad and this particular promotion. And then the return that you're typically getting on those types of retargeting ads is incredibly high. In fact, those are typically the highest return campaigns that we see. Um, so those are the two bread and butter uh, aspects of an AdWords account that I would start with. Um, now, as far as there's always new features that if you're an early adopter, you're going to see great value coming from those. Expanded headlines is one of those that you just mentioned. Uh, eventually, the, the benefit that you'll receive from that will become uh, marginalized because everyone will be doing the same thing. But if you're the, one of the first people to take advantage of those features, it does allow your ad to be differentiated from the competition, bigger, bolder, more information that allows them to make a good decision on coming to your site. And we are seeing some great results with that. And so as it relates to the latest features for paid search or retargeting, definitely staying on top of those is very worthwhile. Um, a lot of uh, newer businesses, smaller, medium-sized businesses, don't realize that YouTube campaigns are actually managed through AdWords as well. And YouTube is an excellent platform to drive a great return with as well, and one that I would highly recommend starting with a YouTube retargeting ad. So you're only showing the video to those that have come to your site and exhibited certain behavior, but then also targeting uh, proactively on that platform as well is, is very advantageous, as well as Gmail sponsored promotions and in particular industries we're seeing be quite successful. And uh, there's a lot going on there uh, on the display campaign site as well. And so I mean, David, we could talk about all of the different options available to us in AdWords for days, but those are the ones that I would at least be considering starting out. We can, and we've probably got about five more minutes to talk about AdWords. So um, that's um, yep. an impossible amount of time to obviously do the whole topic justice. But um, it's good to leave the listener with you know one or two key takeaways that um, they can take away and hopefully implement within their own campaigns. And I was thinking about copy. Are you seeing any trends in terms of copy that used to work, isn't working so well now, or perhaps copy that's starting to drive higher conversion rates than other copy that you used to use? Yes. And so let me tell you about a best practice that we've integrated into my agency over this last year that has helped substantially improve the effectiveness of the copy that we're writing for ourselves and for our clients. Uh, we take the time to detail out buyer personas. Uh, everyone's heard the phrase, but very few people take the time to do this. Most businesses will have anywhere from, you know, the average is probably five buyer personas up to 20, 30, perhaps many more buyer personas, depending on the size and breadth of the offering of those companies. And so the first thing that we like to do is give these personas a name. This might be Pam, who is a female between the ages of 40 to 60 years old, 
who likes X, Y, and Z, um, as, as an avid pet owner, and et cetera. And then we create Bob, who is on the opposite end of the spectrum. He's between 18 to 25, uh, also uh, loves pets, but tends to like these types of pets. And you know what we do is as we create these types of buyer personas, we start marketing to a person instead of writing ads for a keyword. And David, that might sound brilliant. That might sound stupid. I don't know what's going through your head right now um, or those that are listening. But if you really think about it, it's just that little bit of brilliance that allows you to write to that person rather than writing an ad for a keyword. Because now you're writing to pain points. Now you're writing to, I'm writing different ad copy for a 50-year-old woman than I am for an 18-year-old man because different things are going to resonate with them. I'm then taking that copy that I've written based off of that buyer persona and translating that into their landing page experience on the site as well. And I'm taking those copy best practices based on specific buyer personas and seeing excellent results come from that. And as you can imagine, that really just takes your copywriting levels to the next level when you take that type of an approach and then create that consistent experience from what they search for on Google to the ad copy that you've given them and then a consistent experience on the site. And if you just, if you did nothing else from anything that you listened to in this, in this radio show, you do that with your campaigns and you'll outperform 98% of your competition. You can certainly pinpoint that kind of level of detail using Facebook advertising. But um, is it not the case using Google AdWords, it's actually difficult to target the showing of adverts um, at that precise level of detail? Uh, that, that's an excellent point. With AdWords, or at least with paid search, which is I think what we're referring to here, I think the level of detail is, is oftentimes greater than we're getting on Facebook. Because remember that paid search advertising is reactive in nature. You can't even show the ad until they look for what you have to offer, which means they know what they want and they're, looking, they're actually looking for it. Um, versus on Facebook, you might be trying to give them the idea that they want what you have, where on Google paid search, they're actively looking for that. And so a lot of the demographic and, and other targeting that you can add in Facebook, it's different, but you can add a lot of those same things in, in Google that a lot of people are not taking advantage of in AdWords age, gender, income ranges, um, topics, categories, interests, uh, retargeting campaigns, uploading very specific lists of people that you want to advertise to. Um, if I'm an e-commerce company and I haven't uploaded my customer list into AdWords yet to target those people specifically for repeat purchases, I'm leaving some money on the table. And so actually the level of detail that you can target in AdWords is, uh, I think, you know, at least on point, if not even greater than you would see on Facebook. And I would imagine you'd also advocate taking the detail, the targeting that you use within your ad copy through to your landing pages. And um, I guess building a story towards that person that you're targeting in your landing pages. Absolutely. And that's where uh, it still surprises me. It's 2016. People still point a lot of traffic to their homepage. Paid expensive traffic from AdWords. Uh, some take it to the next level and point it to category pages or higher level services. Uh, just give them what they want. Take, remove the steps, give them exactly what they're looking for, point them to that specific product, color and size, um, point them to that specific service that you can help them with, and then really 
take that copy that you took from your ads and really take it home on that landing page experience. And you know, one of the one of the the best practices here at Disruptive Advertising is if I look at someone's landing page here and it's not clear to me why this is the best damn product or service, um, that means that the landing page is missing that element. Now, those might not be the exact words that we use, but that's what more or less it should be saying. When you come to that page, you've just found the best damn solution that you are looking for, and you are 100% in the exact right place for what you're looking for right now. Absolutely. I hate it when I see an advert for something very specific, and maybe that's what I'm looking for, and I click on that. And then I get driven to the homepage of the website and I'm thinking, now I've got to navigate towards this product. No, I can't even be bothered yes. toward, to do that. So I'm going to go back towards the search results. And it's incredible how many companies out there are still doing that. Well, we, of the over 2,500 AdWords accounts that we've audited, we've found that 74% of the budgets are completely wasted, completely wasted, producing zero conversions. That's not even assuming that the other 26% is profitable. For reasons just like that, David. One more question in relation to AdWords. What are your thoughts on bidding on your own brand? Yeah, um, there's a couple of things to consider. Uh, generally speaking, you should. Um, if you have zero competitors bidding on your brand, then you may not need to, right? If you've done a good job of positioning yourself organically for your own brand, you're on the top, it's clear that they've found you, you may not need to. The reality is most businesses will have a certain level of competition that's bidding on their brand. And for that reason, it's worth it to protect your own brand and to make your competitors pay. Um, for example, Google looks at two things when determining your ad rank, um, whether you're positioned one, two, three, et cetera. They look at how much you're willing to bid and what your, what your quality score is. Based on that, they position your ad. Well, when you're bidding on your own brand, Google says, this is your own brand. I'm going to give you a 10 out of 10 the best quality score that I can give you. Therefore, you don't have to bid as much to rank high. Your, com your competition should be getting a 1 to a 3 out of 10 quality score. And therefore, if you're not bidding on your own brand, you're giving them traffic for very inexpensive. But even if you bid on your own brand with a $1 cost per click, you're now making them pay 3 to $10 per click just to bid on your own brand and making them pay substantially more than they, than they would if you're not bidding on your own brand. So it's a deterrent. It keeps your competition off your brand. Um, it certainly makes it easier and more substantial. We've done a lot of research that shows when you're in the ad and you're in the organic listing that your overall conversion rates and market penetration is substantially better. And so most of the time it makes sense. In the off case that no one's bidding on your brand from a competition standpoint, you can get away without doing it. Well, let's segue into the second section of our discussion. So that focuses more on Jacob's thoughts on where digital marketing has been and where it's heading. So starting off with... Software I couldn't live without. So, Jacob, what software do you currently use in your business that if someone took away from you, it would significantly impact your marketing success? All right. Well, this kind of gets down to the, the bread and butter of, of just how to run a successful business, right? Um, the first thing that I'm looking at every day, Salesforce reports. Okay. Um, I know it's the 800-pound gorilla. A lot of people don't know how to set it up correctly. But here's the thing. All of my marketing campaigns are tied into Salesforce. And that way I can see um, and our clients can see from impression to click to lead to closes uh, through to actual revenue what's going on. 
And so the value that I get from Salesforce or any CRM that can meet that need for you is absolutely critical, I think, to running a successful marketing campaign, especially if you're lead generation, um, where it's offline revenue that you need to tie back to online marketing. And so in those situations, I would say that that's, the, that's definitely the top one that comes to mind. So why did you choose to go with Salesforce? Is that just because you had a lot of experience using Salesforce in the past? Uh, the honest answer is I've used a variety of CRMs. Some of them I've even liked better than Salesforce, but most of our clients use Salesforce, and so we need to right. be the best at using Salesforce to help them be successful with it as well. Um, it is more difficult to set up and run, but it is more robust than uh, most other solutions out there. And that is kind of the, the golden standard in the industry for CRMs right now. And so because that's what most of our clientele uses, uh, ultimately that's what drove us to continue using it for ourselves so that we could test things and, and, and help them be successful with their integrations as well. And here's a slightly more challenging question. And that's what piece of software don't you use, but you've heard good things about and you intend to try at some point in the near future? Ooh. Um, can I cheat on my answer just a little bit? Um, it, it depends how big a cheetah is, but let's, let's hear. <laughs> well, so there is a software, um, there's a lot of BI uh, or dashboarding cloud solutions that have been heavily promoted in the last several years. And so um, I have an outsourced CFO solution that had been providing me at a fairly expensive rate uh, my executive KPI report on a weekly basis. Uh, they've been manually putting this together with spreadsheets, putting it into a PDF and shooting that over to me. And so I had I'd been contemplating for quite some time uh, using a variety of dashboarding solutions that could just automate this process for me, give it to me in real time, and have access to it with an app on my phone, right? And so there's two solutions that, that I was contemplating, and, and both of which have, seem to be great solutions. One of them is Domo. Okay. Um, and, and that's they're just a couple miles up the road from our office here in Utah. Um, another solution that is fantastic and probably better suited for smaller businesses, um, I would say sub-100 employees, is a company called Grow.com as well. And, uh, and so that is one that I considered using for quite some time and just last month pulled the trigger. Uh, so I don't have it all fully integrated and working yet. Um, but that's, that's one of the software solutions that we've recently decided to, all right, we've been thinking about it for long enough, let's pull the trigger and let's get some great reports for myself as the business owner as well as our teams and display it up on, on TV and, and help hold, hold all of us accountable um, for those types of things. And so, I don't think that's too big a cheat, really. Yeah, <laughs> I think not, we'll not let, too bad. We'll right? let you have that one there. And I, I don't <laughs> believe... Uh, in previous interviews, anyone's actually uh, used those two companies, those two websites as well. So when we get a fresh, different perspective, that gives you bonus points. So that, that, that's good. Perfect. Um, so I'll include the links to um, those recommendations in the show notes at um, digitalmarketingradio.com. But um, let's move on to... I wish I would have. So I'd like you to look back on the very first day that you're involved in trying to market a business online. What didn't you do so well? What do you wish that you would have done differently? You know, I look back had a lot of grief uh, that I've dealt with as a marketer. And here's, here's what I've learned, and I'll give you a couple of specific scenarios. Uh, people with a good sales background make excellent marketers. And people with a great marketing background make great sales professionals. 
And one of the things that I look back in my career that I, that I wished I would have learned sooner was how important it is to have an excellent relationship between marketing and sales. And there's a variety of scenarios uh, in a variety of organizations that I've worked with that this has really substantially held them back from being successful. And basically, uh, what I've seen is the finger pointing uh, that occurs between marketing and sales. So the, the, the ultimatum comes down, hey, here's the sales numbers that we need to hit for the month. Marketing hits, you know, sets their goals, sales hits their goals, and when the revenue goal isn't hit, marketing says, well, we drove the leads, and then sales said, well, they weren't good leads, and so we couldn't, we, no one hit the goal, right? And this is one thing that I think will be an excellent takeaway for the listeners to this session. We brought up buyer personas earlier in this, in our conversation, and marketers like to put together buyer personas on their own. And that is the exact wrong thing to do. The first person you should be interviewing and determining who your buyer personas are, what they like, what they don't like, why they're choosing your product or service, go talk to the top salesperson in your organization. Take 30 minutes to an hour of their time and say, why are people buying from you? Who are you talking to? What are they like? What are the pain points that they're experiencing right now? Because I want to drive you more of those opportunities to help you be successful in your role. You have that conversation internally, and you will accomplish what most businesses never do, and that is true synergy between marketing and sales, a collaborative effort of working together to help hit revenue and profitability goals for your organization. And when I've seen, I wish that I would have done that more as a marketer earlier on in my career. Rather than assuming that I knew all of the answers, I wish that I would have gone to the sales team and got their feedback on how to be a better marketer because they know, they know what it takes to get the sale. And sometimes we think we know as marketers, but we don't. Do you think that more successful companies in the future will be having marketing and sales as the same department? Uh, whether or not they do, they should. And, you know, from the trends that I'm seeing, David, I don't see it changing that much, to be perfectly honest. I see it becoming more separated than I do seeing it coming together. And so that, that is one trend that does concern me in the industry because it really holds companies back. The this or that round. So this is the quick response round. Ten quick questions. Just two rows here. Try not to think about the answer too much. And you're only allowed to say the word both on one occasion. Ready to go? All right, let's do it. Email or Twitter? Twitter. Audio or video? Video. Affiliates or display advertising? Display advertising. Facebook or Google Plus? Facebook. Online press releases or one-on-one relations? One-on-one relations. Paid search or SEO? (laughs) Paid search, but you should do both. (laughs) Email contact form or telephone number? Telephone number. Website or app? Website. Social subscriber or email subscriber? Social. And local marketing or global marketing? Local marketing. (laughs) I was kind of surprised that you went with social subscriber uh, rather than email subscriber. Are you not a massive fan of um, email opt-ins as a call to action from your paid ads? 
I like both. So this definitely isn't an either or. Uh, I definitely advocate for both. But I think if you're very active and understand your audience on social media, you can engage with them in a way that's a lot more productive than on email. Um, but again, all of these questions as you're giving them to me, it depends on your business model, on your industry, on your customers. And uh, the great thing is you can typically do both at the same time. Uh, if, you get a, if you get a good email list, you can upload those into social media and you can also you know, target them specifically. So there's, there's mutual synergy between the two. Both are important. I had to lean towards social. Yes, it is. Well, I mean, we're not holding you to it, and um, it's just interesting to see what your instinctive reaction is, obviously, and it might change if you do it again. <laughs> yes, yes, it probably would. The $10,000 question. So if I was to give you $10,000 and you had to spend it over the next few days on a single thing to grow your business, what would you spend it on and how would you measure success? Well, David, I've got a pretty good uh, system already set up that I, I estimate I can probably double to triple my marketing budget without diminishing returns on the, the lead flow and quality that's coming through that. So I would just stick that uh, proportionately into my budget, uh, predominantly being with paid search, retargeting, and paid promotion of our content. Okay, okay. So your content is your primary call to action. Um. We get about, uh, we, we do write a lot of content. We, we have a good media budget, um, a lot of that going through paid search and retargeting. Um, I would probably put about 60 to 70% of it there. And then we produce two to three really good pieces of content per week uh, that we look to promote and just add value in our industry. And that uh, as they come and consume that content, they then go into a retargeting program as well as oftentimes opting into our emailing program and we're hitting them on that end as well so that's 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 where i'd put the budget my number one takeaway well jacob you've offered a lot of great advice in our conversation but what would you say is the number one takeaway what's the single most important step that our listeners need to take away and implement in their businesses <sighs> that will depend on on who the listener is but the one thing that i do not see people doing that i would i would take as the biggest action item from this conversation, go talk to your sales team to solidify your marketing program. That's what I would do. Wonderful advice. Um, great stuff. So thanks to JPEG. And thank you, dear listener, too. If you enjoyed what Jacob shared today, tell us what you think. An iTunes review is always good, and I might even read it out in a future episode. And if Twitter's your thing, at David Bain is my handle. Maybe it's your thoughts on this episode. Maybe it's your thoughts on what we should do for future episodes. Whatever it is, it would be great to hear from you. But until we meet again, be fantabulous and do one thing that scares you. Adios. Thanks again, Jacob. Great episodes. Thanks, David.